there was a headline in NBC News. Israeli police shoot to death Palestinian woman in Jerusalem's old city. What the headline doesn't say is at the time she was stabbing people. My guest today is Dan Pomerantz. Dan is CEO of Honest Reporting, an NGO that monitors the media for bias against Israel. Honest Reporting was started by Jewish British University students at the onset of the Second Intifada in the early 2000s. It was founded as an email list after a skewed news report in the New York Times showed a bleeding boy near a yelling Israeli soldier waving a club. The caption read, an Israeli policeman and a Palestinian on Temple Mount. The picture was interpreted as depicting the Israelis as aggressors against Palestinian children. It was used in the Palestinian Information Center website and online calls to boycott Coca-Cola for doing business with Israel. In fact, the picture was of an American Jewish boy being saved by Israeli soldiers from a lynch mob in an Arab neighborhood in Jerusalem. I recently sat down with Dan and we talked about how honest reporting goes about combating the false depiction of Israel in the media and the challenges they face trying to push back on fake news. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and I just want to tell you right up front, I've been a uh, long-term subscriber to Honest Reporting, I think literally for close to 20 years. Hey, my pleasure, Charles. That's so wonderful to hear. We really appreciate it. We've got a lot of followers who have been loyal for a very long time, and that, that means a lot to hear it. So, so I'm glad we get to meet, yeah. Yeah, same here, same here. So, so Honest Reporting, before we get into the photo that started it all, which I think is going to be really important, uh, is really an organization that was built to combat 20 years ago, fake news. Fake news is what everyone knows in the last four to five years. There's no question about it. But you folks were one of the original pioneers going up against uh, big media and the fake news they were disseminating specifically about Israel uh, during the Antifada. Yeah, we were doing it before it was cool. You know, the, lately that term fake news, it's kind of become politicized, but but if you just ignore the politics for a moment and just think about what the word means, we all know it's a problem these days. And it, it's a problem that goes far beyond Israel. And, you know, it's sort of like that old expression, what starts with the Jews doesn't end with the Jews. Um, or like, you know, that whole old poem, uh, at first I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew and I didn't speak up because I wasn't this. And then they came for me and there was nobody left to speak up. Right. Well, I'm not saying it's, I, I'm not trying to be quite as dire as that. But the truth is, we saw this coming 21 years ago. And we knew it was a problem then, and the problem has only gotten worse and only spread. Right. And, and here, in this case, uh, uh, people's lives are being lost. People are being killed uh, as this fake news has been perpetuated throughout the past two decades that you've been probably even longer uh, demonizing, and, uh, demonizing Israel and the Israeli people against the realities on the ground. Yeah, well, you know... It, there's a real dire problem here. This isn't just talking and, prop, and propaganda or what ideas people have. It's that the terror organizations are watching the news closely, and they know when they score a PR victory that they get real gains from that. It influences policy. It influences uh, the position of countries in, in stopping Israel's self-defense. It influences their ability to oppress their own people. I, you know, as, as hard as it is, to be as an Israeli facing terrorism, I got to admit, it's much worse to be a Palestinian living in Gaza or living under the PA and, and actually having to live under those governments. And every time they score a PR victory, it's bad for Israelis, it's bad for Palestinians, and they know that. And so it really makes a difference. And when you take the opposite approach, if you hold them to account, and if you, if you make every one of their acts visible for what it really is, which is harmful, dangerous, nightmarish, then it decreases the incentive that they have to continue doing it. So what the news does really does make a difference in terms of making our world a better place or a worse place. Right. Okay. Perfect. Well said, by the way. Okay. So let's start. We just celebrated, celebrated, really terrible word, close to a 21 year, yeah, 21 yeah. year anniversary of the photo that started it all. So uh, I'm going to put a link uh, down in the description in the podcast of uh, where they could find this, this photo. I don't want to spill the beans on it. I want you to describe it, 
how it really started, honest reporting, and we could talk from there. Yeah, well, this photo, you know, you see the picture. It's a picture of a policeman standing up there holding this club over his head and uh, sort of down at his feet is this kid on the ground with blood dripping all over his face. And the caption is uh, an Israeli policeman and a Palestinian on the Temple Mount. And they got published by the Associated Press, which means it got picked up everywhere, most notably in the New York Times, but it was picked up in publications all over the world. And then the kid's father saw it. The kid was not a Palestinian. He was a Jewish American guy who was in Israel to study in yeshiva. He's from Chicago. His name is Tuvia Grossman. His father sees his own son in this photo being portrayed as a Palestinian. And, and hang on a second. And this photo is on the front page of the New York Times, above the That's fold. That's correct. Above the fold. That's correct. And with uh, with that caption there that's saying, you know, the 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 Palestinian, the Israeli policeman, the Palestinian and the Temple Mount. OK, folks, and, I mean, be, before you go further, Dan, I, I want you yeah. uh, when you're listening to this podcast, I want you right afterwards or even stop the podcast now and click on the link because you don't get, you really don't get a sense of what this picture depicted and how you would have been furious if it was true. Uh, an Israeli beating up a, 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 a Palestinian kid for no reason on the Temple Mount. Keep that in mind as Dan uh, continues. Yes, and by the way, you know, there was a gas station in the background of the photo. Uh, anybody who knows anything about Jerusalem knows that there's not a gas station on the Temple Mount. There's the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, not a gas station. And, and, so, and that just goes to show you, I mean, just from that alone, you know, I'm a big fan of critical thinking. People always ask me, you know, how can I tell if the news is true or which source should I trust? And I would say, you know, it's not about the source. It's about using the tools you have to look at any source you're looking at and ask yourself, does something seem off here? Now, the moment you see that there's a gas station on the Temple Mount, you know right off the bat that whoever wrote that caption knows less than nothing about Jerusalem. I mean, that's not like a spelling mistake. You have to actually not know what's going on. So that's the first problem that you see right there. Okay. Then, of course, you wouldn't know that uh, Tuvia Grossman was a Jewish kid from Chicago unless, you know, you happen to be his father reading the newspaper, Okay. Which is what well, happened. Let, me, let me build this up for those who are driving right. to work or not watching this picture. Let me just add a little more color to it. So the photo is above the fold. It's around, uh, I think, three or four columns uh, big, uh, wide, and it's on September 30th, 2000, right at the start of the second Intifada before uh, suicide bombers were walking into pizza store, pizza pizza parlors, on buses, blowing up Israelis and anyone around them, children, women, men. It was horrific, absolutely horrific. So this photo is in color, shows a kid petrified out of his mind, white shirt, stained with blood, and an Israeli policeman holding a club over his, uh, at a right angle, above his head, and shouting. And that's the picture that goes throughout the world. Now, give us what actually is happening in this photo. Well, what's actually happened is a very evocative photo. I mean, the kid is sitting there looking horrified with blood on his face. The police officer standing there with a baton above his head. It looks like the policeman was just beating the kid with the baton. That's what it looks like. What actually happened was that this Jewish kid had been pulled from his taxi by a mob of Palestinians who were all worked up and trying to do something violent. And they were beating him and probably would have beat him to death. And then this police officer comes and the police officer, is, his name is Officer Safadi, he's a Druze guy. Now, if you don't know what the Druze people are, they're, um, they're, they are their own culture and their own religion, but their, their main language is Arabic. Uh, some they're not Muslim, but uh, they do sometimes self-identify as Arab and sometimes not. Right, but they're specific, they're definitely not Jewish. No question about definitely that. Definitely not Jewish, and and they're if not Arab, certainly very close to to the the Arab culture, and that's significant to me because the New York Times said that this was an Israeli, presumably a Jew, beating a Palestinian Arab. When in reality, it was an, an Arab or someone very close to being culturally Arab protecting an American Jew from Palestinians. And the point I always like to make is this is not about Jews versus Arabs. This is not about Israelis versus Palestinians. This is about people who care about peace and coexistence, standing up 
against the people who want to destroy those things. And that's what that picture showed. And that's actually one of the most hopeful, optimistic messages for our world that you could see. And it's, it's telling that Israel is a source of this hopeful, optimistic message of people of all religions and all cultures standing together against violence and terror. And the New York Times decimated that message and reversed it with this utter fiction. Okay. So now this goes throughout the world. As you mentioned, the Associated Press takes this and circulates this everywhere. And this is now the face of uh, Palestinian uh, oppression in Jerusalem. Officers, Israeli, Israeli uh, a policemen beating up Palestinian kids. You can't get worse than that. Now, oh, yeah. for, for years afterwards, the, the photo's been used um, by Egypt, by the Palestinian Authority. It's been all over the Arab world long after it was debunked. It continued to be used as a symbol of Palestinian oppression. You can imagine how Tuvia feels about that. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, an, an, an American Jewish kid as the symbol of uh, Israeli horror <laughs> masquerading as an Arab. Hysterical. Only, only The New York Times did a great service. Okay, so now, the New York Times puts this out there. There's no honest reporting at the time, is that right? That's correct. Okay. So a bunch of, I think it's uh, British university students, Jewish British university students start a, a mailing list? Yeah, that's right. There, you know, this was before social media. There was no such thing as uh, putting it up in a place where everyone could share it. So they did what they could, which is they just started an email list to try and get attention and get people engaged. And and uh, you were telling me before that uh, that you were there at the time in New York, right? Yeah, yeah. And and people were printing it out. Yeah, is that right? yeah. This is before you know. Uh, not every there were still holdouts back in two thousand for email, right? So email we. Were, there were still people still dialing up, you know, using modems. And I remember in synagogue on Friday nights, uh, those, they told you to sign up. Some people said, I don't have an email address or what have you. So they printed out um, this, um, uh, the picture and, uh, and the commentary about what it was. Because look, if you didn't know what this was, you would say, oh my gosh, how could this be happening in Israel? And uh, then uh, as the weeks went on and the organization started, I remember in 2002 was specifically when suicide bombing was just horrendous, it was everywhere, and, and so, many, um, so many were dying in, in terrible, terrible ways. Uh, Honest Reporting was one of the publications uh, printed out each week pointing out the inaccuracies in the media and the uh, distortions, real distortions, of what was actually happening to fit the narrative. Yeah, and that... Um that from that mailing list grew an entire organization. And now we've got a mailing list with 100,000 people on it. We've got a staff of 20. We've got a headquarters in Jerusalem and a, an office in Tel Aviv and another office in New York. And, uh, and we've done a lot of work since then. And, and it makes a difference. You know, the first thing that happens is that um, journalists used to just sort of outright lie or get facts wrong. But now that we've started, uh, started being diligent, and it's grassroots, you know, we, we put out our critique and, and all of our followers respond and write letters to the editor and they could get hundreds or thousands of letters. And they started uh, changing their tactics. Then they started telling sort of half truths or kind of saying something that's technically true, but very misleading. And then we started finding ways to catch them on that. Okay. And now we've got some sophisticated software to analyze the long-term trends and see what they're leaving out, which is another technique. They might not say something that they should be saying so but i find that encouraging actually because it shows me that they know that we're watching and that they know that we can have an impact on their reputation and on their credibility and that's the one thing a journalist cares about mm -hmm. is credibility it's all they have okay so credibility is all they have yet for so long in this uh in, in fight in this battle uh against terrorism it seems to be that there are so many inaccurate stories uh, calling uh, terrorist freedom fighters, uh, calling uh, suicide bombers. They had nice names for, you know, if, if four people died in a suicide bombing and two of them happened to be the suicide bombers, they would say four people died in the suicide bombing, uh, inflating numbers, uh, um, and a whole bunch of other things that you can definitely shed more light on. If a journalist's reputation is everything, why would a willing to risk it by printing half-truths? Do they not know it to be half-truths or in the rush for a deadline, they messed up? 
But is there a plan or was this just a one-off? You know, that's a really good question. And, and the answer is that when we talk about the media, we're talking about hundreds of companies that employ thousands of people and all people are different. <clears throat> okay. So some people, look, some people really are anti-Semites. I mean, that's, it, that exists. Uh, in fact, we exposed a couple of them this, this year. We got a woman was fired from the BBC when we exposed that she had been tweeting Hitler was right. And this is a woman who was assigned by the BBC to cover Israel in the, in the Gaza conflict in May. I mean, you'd think of, of all things to assign someone to, if they're an anti-Semite, you'd think don't assign them to Israel. Some, some journalists, though, really are trying to do the right thing, and they're just misinformed. Some really want to get that Pulitzer Prize. Some journalists, and this is the part that I think is actually that I have the biggest problem with, is some feel like their job as a journalist is to go out there and change the world and to be a voice for the voiceless. The job of a journalist is to provide reliable information to people like you and me so that we can read the story and come to our own well-informed conclusions. It's not to put push an agenda. Now, if you have an agenda, that can be an admirable thing. Join an advocacy organization, have your agenda, but be honest about it. I sort of compare it to a, a surgeon. You know, doctors in Israel, they take a lot of pride. I mean, I think doctors all over the world take pride, but in particular in Israel, they take pride in the idea that someone comes into the emergency room, doesn't matter if they're a terrorist or that terrorist's victim. They treat everybody the same. And then after the emergency surgery, there are courts and judges and lawyers to work out the rest, right? And doctors take great pride in that, as they should. If a doctor were to say, well, this guy on my operating table, I assume he's a terrorist. You know, I haven't gone to court and figured out all the facts, but I think he's a bad guy, so I'm going to go ahead and kill him. Well, that's basically the equivalent of a, a journalist saying, well, I assume I know who the good guys and bad guys are, so I'm going to twist this story in order to make a point. And there are journalists who definitely do that. And I was speaking to a, a journalism class recently uh, a class of international journalists who had come to the, the IDC University in Israel. And I asked, why did you, why are you guys going into journalism? And definitely some of them said, because I want to make a difference in the world and I want to change, change uh, life for people who are underrepresented. And I said, you know, that's, that's admirable, but it's not journalism. And, you know, there's a, a, another story that's very telling. You know how that, that uh, phrase, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter mm -hmm. came about. A lot of people don't know the story about this. this it actually happened uh, on 9-11. It may not have been the first time anyone ever said it, but it was the first time it became popularized. The Associated Press refused to call the 9-11 hijackers terrorists. And when they were asked about it, the president of the AP said, well, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. But what was even more telling was another top executive from the Associated Press said later that week, you know, we've got journalists all over the world and if we say something that angers the, the people in the countries they're in, it could put their lives in danger. Now, on a superficial level, it sounds like a very responsible corporate executive saying, I care about the safety of my employees. But on a deeper level, this is someone who runs a global journalism organization. I mean, the AP news from the AP gets to almost every newspaper you read, New York Times, CNN, everyone takes from the AP. This top executive was saying, in no uncertain terms, we are willing to compromise the accuracy of our journalism depending on who threatens us the most. And he actually said, he didn't say it in those words, but that's what he said. If our journalists are unsafe in a certain place, we're going to change what we write to make our journalists safer. Perhaps very responsible on a human level, but again, it's not journalism. And even in uh, Palestinian territories as well as Gaza, if journalists, I remember 9-11, that um, the PA Palestinian Authority was threatening uh, journalists from covering the celebrations and the handing out of sweets after the, the World Trade Centers uh, came down. And uh, Yasser Arafat at the time was making sure none of that information got out while the Palestinians were handing out sweets as a happy occasion. Yeah, you know, the journalists, there, there are a couple of things journalists need. One is safety. Uh, the other is access. You know, sometimes you don't even have to threaten a journalist. You just have to say, look, if you uh, don't write what I like, I'm going to kick you out of the country. And, you know, you think back to the days of people like, you know, Dan Rather and, and you know, the, 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 the classics of journalism. When they went to the Soviet Union, you know, they would come 
out and they would say this report has been censored by the Soviet censor. And then in the, the Gulf War in 1991, there was the, an interview with Saddam Hussein and they came out and they said our you know interview has been gone through Saddam Hussein's censors. You know, sometimes, okay, maybe you can't do the most complete reporting because there are restrictions on you, but you should let your, your viewers know that so that they can evaluate the information in, in the most accurate possible way. But, you know, like I was saying, there are also a lot of people who feel like they're out there on a mission. They think they know what's right in the world. And if the facts create a cognitive dissonance for them, then they try to ignore those facts or sweep them under the rug because they feel like they're trying to make a difference, trying to, to, to tell a certain narrative rather than, you know, rather than tell, tell a true story. Right. The, the world is a complicated place. It takes time and thought to understand it. You can't go parachute into uh, Israel and uh, in the course of a day, be ready to report with any kind of accuracy. You've got to really listen. And do you find uh, that many of these reporters who report uh, distorted information that is sometimes fed to them from, uh, from uh, uh, Palestinian sources and uh, Arab terrorist organizations, do you feel a lot of them are just naive or they just don't have the experience to realize what kind of complicated neighborhood they're reporting on? You know, you get a little of both. Some are naive. Uh, some realize that uh, if, if they take an anti-Israel approach, they'll get more accolades from their peers and colleagues and, you know, Pulitzer Prizes and that sort of, that sort of thing. But there are definitely uh, people who really think they understand the, uh, the, the situation and really think that they're doing good in the world. You know, they, um, there was a, a story where um, some journalists had interviewed uh, the mother of uh, a terrorist and, and the terrorist had been killed while carrying out a terrorist attack. Now they went to this mother's house and she's crying and upset and talking about how she lost her only son and all this sort of thing. I don't know if it was her only son, but her, her son. And um, look, that's it, emotionally uh, heart-wrenching to be sitting there with a mother who lost her son. And regardless of why her son died, those are a mother's tears. And, and that's a very human thing. But you have to actually do the work and do the research to realize, well, you know, if her son hadn't been carrying out a terror attack, he might not have died. Or, or if, if the police officer who shot him hadn't shot him, then he would have potentially killed many other people. And, you know, there was a headline just today. I, I'm going to pull this up on my phone here. Um, this was, I mean, not today. It was uh, three days ago. So right now, you know, this week, I don't know when this is going to air the podcast, but uh, this week while we're shooting, this is the, the anniversary of the photo that started it all. And in this same week, there was a headline in NBC News, Israeli police shoot to death Palestinian woman in Jerusalem's old city. What the headline doesn't say is at the time she was stabbing people. Okay, so now, let, me, let me stop you there. Let me stop you. Yeah. I don't want to be paranoid. And I don't want to think the whole world's against me. But in that, that headline, why was that information or the context, why was the context not given, in your opinion? You know, it's a funny thing. When you talk to journalists, the, the, oftentimes their first response will be, well, the headline's technically true. <laughs> and it is technically true. But of course, it leaves out the. Well, so 9/11 so, so was a plane crash. Technically, it was a plane crash, right? Yeah, it's technically, it was a plane. Technically, the headline could read uh, "19 Saudi men killed in, yeah. in uh, when in plane when crash." World Trade Center plane crash. Plane crash. You could, <laughs> or you could even say the World Trade Center knocked down their plane. Right. Got in its way. You know, I think you've got people who have a sense of what's clickbait, of what's popular, of what's hot. And also I think there's a, some journalists have a sense of being, um, because they've grown up on this idea that Israel must be evil because Israel is perhaps larger or that uh, Israel's evil because somebody told them that. They become inherently suspicious of Israel and they think, okay, well, maybe this woman was stabbing people, but, Maybe not, and I don't trust the trust uh, what I'm hearing. 
stabbing or maybe she was stabbing people, but maybe she had a good reason because she's been oppressed all her life. But but the important thing here is that Israel is being oppressive. And that's the story I have to tell. And the fact that she was stabbing people gets in the way of this good story. I, I, I tell you, the only way I can explain it is this. A friend of mine many years ago who uh, kind of got into conspiracy theories and, and got, she, she posted something on Facebook about how uh, the United States spends um, so much more money on defense than it does on education. And it had a big graph with the defense spending really high and the education spending really low. And, you know, I checked it out and I, I realized she was just looking at federal education spending, but not state education spending, which if you add up the spending in all the states, it's actually a much larger number. And I said to her, look, I agree with you. I do think we should spend more on education, but the figure you have there actually is, is not true because the United States as a whole country actually spends more than that. And she said to me these words, it doesn't matter. The point is too important. We have to make the point so people will listen. And I thought to myself, you just honestly told me to my face that because you believe in your point, you're willing to lie to make it. And she honestly felt like she was being a good human being because it's that important to get education spending awareness on people's minds that it doesn't even matter if I lie a little bit to get there. So the, so the, and, so the, uh, the, the, the the ends really justify the means justify the end regardless if yeah, the end yeah, point that, is x any all right so it's not 100 percent true but it still is and i want to make the point that's it, it seems there there's no line between any truth any reality it's basically you start with the arrow and then you just paint the bullseye yeah for many people it is that way and, and you have to understand <clears throat> or at least you don't have to understand it, but because this is my job, I have to understand it because my goal is to make a difference in the world and to actually move the needle on, on this journalism. I have to understand that people who think this way, many of them genuinely think this way. They honestly believe this. That's why I say, you know, I've been in debates with um, senior members of the PLO Central Committee. I was in a debate with Omar Barghouti, the founder of BDS. And I honestly find it more easy and pleasant to be in debates with people like that because they know exactly what they're doing and they know what Israel is all about. I mean, Omar Barghouti, who believes in boycotting Israel, he got his degree from the University of Tel Aviv. You know, he says it's an apartheid state. He got a degree here. And uh, so he knows. And, and these guys all know. So they're, they're playing their game. And, you know, my job when I'm on TV with them is, is to expose them. And, you know, I, I'm I'm on an emotional level, I'm okay with that conversation. What's hard for me is when you're talking to someone who really has drunk the Kool-Aid and really believes that they're doing something that makes the world a better place and really believes that lying or twisting the truth or hiding facts makes the world a better place. And there are, you know, oddly enough, there are, are people who believe that. But once you speak to people like that, you find that that emotion is really deep and, you know, in, in everybody's personal movie, they're the hero. No, nobody's the bad guy in the movie of their own life. And so you kind of have to put yourself in someone else's shoes and say, in what way does this person really think that he or she is doing good in the world? And if you can find that point, then maybe you have a chance of communicating with them and moving the needle a little bit. And sometimes we do. Sometimes we can talk them through and, and get them to come around. And sometimes we have to just put on public pressure. And then when they see that the thing they wrote has caused them a certain amount of uh, humiliation, then uh, then they'll step back. Uh, but whether it's by, um, you know, the positive way or, or the pressure way, you have to reach people in that place where their headspace is. Okay. Recently, we saw that the Democratic Party for the first time ever, uh, Israel and defense of Israel was always, was never a bipartisan issue. Both sides of the aisle were totally for defending Israel at, and supplying them uh, military um, military equipment, uh, Iron Dome especially, for rockets that are fired from Gaza. So most recently, the House Democrats passed uh, a budget bill and took out a billion dollars in emergency funding for Israel's Iron Dome. Israel's Iron Dome is that amazing technology that when they shoot rockets from Gaza to Israeli population centers. The Iron Dome sends up missiles and missiles and blows them up. Okay, not 100% guarantee uh, accurate. Uh, not going to knock down everyone, but a majority of them are, and it saves tens of thousands of lives. 
The past couple of weeks or so ago, the eight Democrats vote against this, which was never an issue. And one uh, AOC, she says she votes present and cries hysterically or makes it look like she's pretty sad about this. My question to you is, when you see something like this and what uh, um, Rashida Tlaib tweets out, uh, we must stop enabling Israel's human right abuses and apartheid government. How does honest reporting take that and basically shed some light as to A, what's happening, and B, is to really uh, tell the public of they're not seeing all the facts? Yeah, I mean, it's the thing about Iron Dome. It is a purely defensive system. It cannot do anything other than protect people. And it doesn't just protect Israelis because without the Iron Dome, you know, Israel would have to escalate and go into Gaza on foot and cause much more casualties. And so this saves Palestinians. You know, once I was um, during one of the recent wars, I got caught outside. You know, during, during a war, when they fire rockets at us, they, you hear the air raid sirens, and then you have to run to the nearest bomb shelter. And if you're anywhere in a city or near a building, there, there's one you can get to. But uh, every once in a while, you get caught out sort of in a field or by a road or somewhere where you just don't have a place to go. And so when that happens, you, you have to lay down on the ground, face down, interlace your fingers over the back of your head. Uh, and because the idea is, you know, if there's a direct hit on you, you're dead. But if something, if something explodes near you, the danger then becomes shrapnel. And shrapnel tends to fly in an upward trajectory. So if you get yourself very low to the ground and, and you cover your face, the hope is that maybe you might not get hit by shrapnel. So while I'm laying there by the side of the road with my face in, in the ground and, and my hands linked uh, over behind my head, I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's entirely possible that Israel knew about this particular rocket launching device, uh, but chose not to blow it up because there might have been Palestinian civilians nearby, which happens frequently. Israel will find it, spot it, but a civilian is nearby, and so they don't, they don't destroy it. And it's possible that they didn't destroy this one and that this one kept firing. And if that was the case, you know, every time that happens, Israel has to decide, well, if I blow this thing up, I might harm a Palestinian civilian, but if I don't blow it up, it keeps firing at Israeli civilians. And I'm a civilian too. And right now I'm lying on the ground hoping I don't get hit by a, by a missile or by shrapnel. And that's because we as Israelis will risk our lives to save the lives of Palestinians. Well, Iron Dome helps with that because if you have Iron Dome, you can shoot these things out of the sky. If you don't have Iron Dome, you have to go in and destroy these rocket launchers or else Israeli civilians will die. But when you destroy the rocket launchers, you know, these terror organizations intentionally build them in schools and in mosques and in kindergartens and in UN facilities. And, and they do that on purpose in order to make it harder to destroy them, or at least to win them a PR victory if Israel does destroy them. Because then the story doesn't become that Israel destroyed an offensive weapon. It becomes that Israel killed children in a, in a kindergarten classroom, which, by the way, brings us back to that theme of that terror groups put these things in kindergarten classrooms because the media enables that practice, because the media gives them that PR victory. If the media wouldn't give them that PR victory, they would have less incentive to put those missiles in kindergarten classrooms in the first place. So the media is harming Palestinians actually much more than they're harming Israelis. And Iron Dome protects Palestinians and Israelis both uh, very much. So to vote against this, there's no logical reason whether you support Israelis or Palestinians. It, it would only be if you actually support the terror organizations who are oppressing Palestinians and Israelis. And really what uh, AOC and Rashida Tlaib and, and, uh, and the other members of the squad were, were doing here was they were um, using this budget bill as an attempt to pitch a narrative. And that narrative is that, that Israel is evil and shouldn't be uh, permitted to, to protect itself from terrorism. Now, there is also a Republican argument against foreign aid, but it's not a very popular one, um, uh, even among Republicans. Some Republicans say, well, we shouldn't uh, spend money on foreign aid because we, we should spend our money locally and not abroad. But most Republicans, and for that matter, most Democrats understand that, that what we spend on foreign aid, particularly on Israel, is an investment in the safety of America. And 
So there was a, a follow-up uh, to this to this budget bill, which reinstated the Iron Dome funding. The vote was two hundred and what was it four hundred ninety to four yeah to, eight. to eight. four I'm sorry four hundred and twenty to four hundred twenty to nine eight uh, Democrats and one Republican. It was it was it was, um, it was eight Democrats and it was eight no's and one present. Right, eight no's and one present. <laughs> and um, the uh, what concerns me, you know, I'm not concerned about the re- the Republican anti foreign aid idea because it's been around forever. It doesn't have a lot of traction even in the party. Um, it's an idea that people pitch around, but for the most part, it just doesn't have legs. Also, most American foreign aid is spent on American products anyway, so it creates American jobs. Um, but what we saw now in Congress, the the eight Democrats, you know, this used to be something you only heard on college campuses. And then it started entering the halls of Congress. But we said, okay, well, it's still not a big deal because it's just fringe politicians who have no real, real uh, leverage. But then the next thing that happened is it actually created a major change in a major budget bill. Now, a lot of people, and particularly a lot of Israelis, you know, Israelis only like to recognize a crisis when it's really on top of you. And so the, the attitude in Israel has been like, ah, what do we care? It was out one day, it was back the next day. The, the vote was bipartisan. There's huge bipartisan support for Israel. What's the problem? The problem is that it's a trend. It went from nothing to college campuses, to the halls of Congress, to torpedoing a major budget bill. The question is, what's going to happen next? Because we see a trajectory here. And that's why I'm saying here in Israel, I'm trying to spread the message we have to really be talking to young liberal progressives, to people on campus. We've got to speak their language. We've got to speak their vocabulary. Because you know what? When you talk to people who are right-leaning, they, they often their, their main priority is going to be safety, security, defense, protecting America, protecting American allies. When you talk to people on the left, uh, a lot of times their, their concern is human rights and, uh, and liberal values. And you know what? The fact is that Israel wins on both of those. Yeah, but let me interrupt you for a second. When you talk about people on the left, uh, the extreme left also, human values and uh, rights and so on and so forth, where's the upcry over what's happening in Afghanistan now with the Taliban from the left? Why aren't there protests in the street? Why aren't we seeing uh, the tears that we saw uh, back when... Uh, uh, Israel was uh, getting attacked daily with missiles shot to its population centers. Why? Why is that not? Why don't we hear anything about that? You know, I don't have an answer to that, but I will say that, you know, part of my job is is speaking to people who don't agree with me and seeing if I can't get them to move the needle a little bit. And if you're going to speak to someone whose main concern is human rights, you've got to speak to them in the language that they speak, right? So if somebody's uh, so if you want to talk to someone about Afghanistan, uh, you know, if you're talking to someone who cares about American security, you say, hey, here are the American security issues that are involved in Afghanistan. Here's why we should be doing things differently. But if you want to talk to someone on the left, you got to say to them, listen, this is what's happening to women in Afghanistan. This is what's happening to journalists in Afghanistan. This is what's happening to free speech and to human rights in Afghanistan. This is what Taliban has done all over the world. Afghanistan. Stan, whether you're on the right or the left, you should have the same opinion. Okay, so my question and, to you is, okay, I, I agree with you. Yeah. So why aren't we hearing that? Why are we seeing like we saw uh, a few weeks ago, um, I don't know how many weeks ago, a month or so, two months ago, with uh, Israel and Gaza during the missiles uh, in almost in the protests in every almost every major city in Europe, in the United States as well, uh, in Los Angeles, in New York. Uh, for these terrorist organizations against Israel. Why aren't we seeing, as you mentioned, this is what the liberals stand for, this is what the leftists rather stand for, of women's rights in this. Where's the outcry? Where's the outcry that the Taliban is now taking these women who have been free and lived a life and became judges and lawyers and musicians and soccer players and actors and, 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 and the whole gamut, now being subjugated to staying home and being shot if they don't wear the burqa. Where's this outcry? You know, I have a theory about that. And, and you know, these are, you know, you try to read somebody's minds. It's, it, it's, it's hard to, to know really what someone's thinking, but I do have a thought. There's a feeling now that there's a very strong value on the left that we want to not be racists. 
And that ends up leading to this misleading idea that if I take a stand against um, any organization that identifies itself as being Muslim, even if it means Islamist, then that means I'm a racist. And so to take a stand against the Taliban, I think to some people makes them feel like they're being racist because the Taliban is an Islamist organization. But of course, all the people the Taliban is oppressing are Muslims as well. And I always say this in Israel, if you genuinely care about Palestinians, you have to take a stand against the terror organizations that are oppressing Palestinians. You know, we did a better job of this in Syria where people at least understood that, you know, when the United States launched or the coalition forces launch a strike on ISIS or on Bashar Assad's chemical weapons, people aren't saying, oh my God, how could we attack Syria and, and Syrians? No, people say, thank goodness, we finally attacked the people in Syria who are oppressing Syrians. And so I know that people are capable of understanding that complexity, that, that it's not just two sides. It's not just uh, America against Syria. It's America against forces in Syria who are oppressing people in Syria. And I, so we know people are capable of understanding that. And we know that when, when Trump originally said he was going to pull um, U.S. forces out of Syria, he ended up not following through on that. But there was a big outcry against that. And and actually, I, I agree that that it was the right thing to keep the forces in, which which he did in the end. Um, but uh, that's a dynamic that we should be able to understand in Israel, in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, that this isn't about the West versus Islam. This is about what we can do to help people of all religions who are living under oppression. And sometimes that oppression is in the name of a certain religion, but that's misleading because the oppressors are oppressing people of that religion. Yeah, I, I saw recently that the, um, uh, the Uyghurs in China, I don't know how many millions are in concentration camps, and it's really the, the Chinese government is looking to destroy the Uyghur culture by torturing these people, by putting them in concentration camps, making them change their name, so on and so forth. And recently, Iran and I think the Taliban have signed agreements or got closer to China, which is just absolutely staggering. Yeah. Well, look, I tell you what, um, you know, a lot of uh, American corporations have gotten closer to China. Hollywood has gotten closer to China. Hollywood now censors itself. Seven years in Tibet couldn't get made today. That movie would never, it just could not get made. Uh, I think recently was wasn't the NBA apologized to, yeah. to China for, yeah. you know, they they're exercising a lot of the thing about the Chinese is that they are very good at thinking long term. And when I say long term, I don't mean 10 years. I mean, centuries, generations. Yeah, centuries, centuries. Really. <laughs> yeah. you know, and one of the greatest things about capitalism is that we're always thinking of the best, most efficient, most innovative way to get something done and to get it done now and to get it done fast. But it does have its disadvantage, which is that as a good CEO, as a responsible CEO, you're going to do what makes your company the most money. And that means doing whatever it takes to enter the Chinese markets. And a government such as the United States government is going to want to create an environment in which American companies can function around the world, including in China. And China is taking advantage of that. And they're doing it in a way that's very clever. I think that we as a country have to think, you know, it's you don't want to late kill the goose that laid the golden egg you don't want to destroy the capitalist system that has brought us so much prosperity and so much strength but you do have to temper it with a little bit of long-term thinking especially when you're facing an adversary who uses unfair trade practices in order to implement a multi-century plan right um dan last question for you uh you speak with a lot of journalists and a lot of journalist uh, students i believe in, in colleges uh, are they, has, has journalism gone through a kind of metamorphosis in terms of where journalists were concerned about getting the story right and putting their personal feelings on hold? I remember just, uh, just as an aside, how uh, many reporters, when Kennedy was shot, were trying as best they could to report and divorce their feelings from the event. And uh, sometimes they were successful. And with Walter Cronkite's case, he gulped a second and almost couldn't. But it was that sense of getting the story right. Uh, do you see any hope for future journalists 
that their concern and the teachings and the schools should be to get the story right instead of getting the story the way you want it. Yeah, well, like I was, I was saying before, I, I um, you know, I, when I speak to, to groups of journalists, students, they, uh, they, there will always be a certain percentage of the class that says, the re- if I, when I ask why are you going into journalism, they'll say the reason is to make a change in the world, to affect situations in the world, to change politics, to speak up for the people who don't have voices, when in fact their, their real job should be to just convey reliable information to other people who can then in turn make their own choices based on whatever the information is. And you know, you remember Woodward and Bernstein when they exposed Nixon. Now I can't read their mind and, and I don't know if this is true, but based on what they've said in statements afterwards, they weren't looking to topple a president. They were just following the story. Right. And from what they say, if the story would have exonerated Nixon or turned out to be nothing at all, they would have reported that just as faithfully. But they followed the story and it ended up leading to, to a truth that did topple a presidency. But but it was a truth. It, it wasn't it wasn't something, it wasn't an agenda. And we do and, and now I think a lot of young people, they want to be Woodward and Bernstein, but they don't want to be seekers after truth. They want to be the people who topple a, a president or a regime or get a big prize. And they know that you don't get that by reporting a story that turns out to just exonerate people or, or not have any meat to it. So there's an element of that. But you know what we haven't touched on is that the world is changing uh, with, with new media, right? You know, you've got a lot of people spreading a lot of information on, on all these platforms, and, and there's always a new one. I mean, Twitter is, is the biggest one for journalists now, but you know, even TikTok and and Instagram and, and all sorts of platforms, and there's always a new one coming. Conventional journalism is getting hit hard economically by that, but the interesting thing is it continues to have a really strong impact on messaging because a lot of what you see, even on social media, begins with a legacy journalism piece that gets posted, and then everyone comments and, and shares their thoughts. Right. And that piece will often have credibility because it was written by this big you know, brand name. A friend of mine recently was having this debate with me. He's telling me uh, that such and such company paid no federal taxes this year. And so I, uh, you know, I, I looked up their SEC filings and I saw, well, they did pay federal taxes. They, they had some, um, some projects at the state level that they gave them offsets. And, and so they, the offsets approximately equaled the federal liability. And so the journalist said, effectively, they paid no federal tax. But my friend is sending me articles from CNN and MSNBC, like, look, all these guys say they paid no federal taxes. And I'm saying to him, look, I don't care if it came from CNN or, or MSNBC. I can go to the original source. I can actually see their SEC filings. It's like if I'm looking out the window and it's raining out and the news is telling me it's sunny out, I don't care if that news is a very reputable source. I have a window. And yeah, but you know, you, you, the- you know what I found in is that so many times uh, we have a friend of mine who did, 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 you know, does that. I remember in 2008, I used to see him every day and he used to give me, uh, you know, just the headline of the day. I said, that's not the real story. You just read the headline, right? Let me tell you what's yeah. going on in the financial crisis. And it, it, these, you know, look, I, I do understand that because uh, to do that, to dig a little deeper, takes work. And who the heck wants to work? It's much easier to take a um, uh, to take a, a headline and run with it. Well, it is, and this is my message to everyone. You know, if I can, if there's one message I want to convey to everybody. Uh, it's, you know, people always ask me which news source can I read. Uh, that that will be accurate. Which, you know, which new source about Israel can I read that'll be accurate? You know, it's a hard question. The New York Times has been very problematic, but they have Brett Stevens, and until recently they had Barry Weiss, who did very good work. Uh, there are newspapers in, in Israel, the Times of Israel and the Jerusalem Post, who, which are, I mean, they're located here, they know Israel well, and generally they're good, but even then, there are certain journalists there who I, I disagree with uh, sometimes and disagree with their approach. Anyone's capable of getting it right or getting it wrong. It's about critical thinking. You know, I, I started my career as a lawyer in, in America before coming to Israel and then eventually uh, joining Honest Reporting. And as a lawyer, they teach you about critical thinking. Everything that you believe, and it was a funny joke once, that's uh, don't believe everything you think, right? And you think they're gonna say, don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you think. Just because a thought is in your brain, ask yourself, how did that thought get in my brain? How do I know this is true? And once you start questioning that, you might realize that 
things may not be as true as, as, as you think once you examine yourself. So that's the first step to truth. Examine yourself. Why do I believe this is true? The first step, look at the story. Are there internal inconsistencies? Does the headline contradict the, the bulk of the article? Or is there a paragraph right at the end that's buried that contradicts everything that came before? That's your first clue that something's wrong. The next thing you can do is look at multiple sources. And that can be misleading because if the Associated Press or Reuters puts out a story, it may appear in 100 different publications. But that's not 100 different stories. That's one story that got reprinted 100 times. So look for actual multiple different sources and ask yourself, which so where do these sources align and where do they contradict? And where they do contradict, which one makes the most logical sense given all the other facts that I know? And if you really want to try this, you know, really want to test yourself, try it in a situation that you know nothing about. You know, pick uh, the border clashes between Iran and Azerbaijan. You know, pick uh, the conflict in the Kashmir between Pakistan and India. Pick some situation you don't know and look at a few sources and see if you can test yourself to figure out what's really going on there. And you'll discover it's never as easy as you think. Nice. That's, that's great. All right. But it can be done. And yeah. that's the important thing. Yeah, it takes work. You know, I don't think, you know, we're looking for shortcuts. You know, it's much easier to just look at a headline or a picture and, and, and uh, you know, draw, draw a conclusion from that. Uh, anything else requires a lot of thought. And, you know, most people just don't have time for that. They want everything wrapped up, easy, explainable, and, you know, a soundbite. Well, that's fine. But you know what I say to people? If you care enough about an issue uh, to, to protest or take a position, yeah, yeah. then you should care enough to learn about it. And if you don't care enough to learn about it, don't take a position. Right. And I'll tell you what, there are a lot of issues in the world that I don't know about because I'm only one human person. And that's fine. But I don't take a position on those issues. And I'm not afraid to say the words I don't know when it's appropriate. Yeah, great, great advice, man. That was great. Super. Dan Pomerantz, CEO of Honest Reporting. How could, how could uh, uh, listeners find you? Come to honestreporting.com. First of all, you can find me on Twitter. Um, my, my handle is Daniel Speaks Up, one word. But you can also find Honest Reporting on Twitter. And on every platform, our handle is Honest Reporting, one word. But if you come to honestreporting.com, you can sign up for our newsletter. And if you really want to swim in this, have a good intuition for what's right or wrong, the way you build it is five minutes a day. Sign up for our newsletter, read it every day for five minutes. Within weeks, you're going to start discovering that you have a really good sense of what's right and what's wrong in the news just from having that constant input of information. Wow, outstanding. Excellent advice. Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed it. I could speak to you for another couple of hours. Really, really great stuff. Continued success to you and to Honest Reporting. Thanks a lot, Charles. Thanks so much for having me on, on behalf of all of us. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.